Have you ever been given a lesson that you did not heed and later it came back to bite you? Maybe when you were a kid, somebody told you, don't do that, don't run down that hill, don't go so fast, don't do whatever, and you didn't listen, and you ended up with a bump, scrape, a bruise, maybe even a broken bone or two. And the worst part of it was you couldn't even plead ignorance because somebody had told you. Maybe the same thing had happened to you as an adult. Somebody said, I wouldn't try to do that job with that tool if I was you. It's not made for that. Or I wouldn't try to do that job by yourself if I was you. That's really a two-man job. And next thing you know, you're laid up. You know, your back's hurt. Your shoulder's hurt. Your arm's hurt. Whatever. Can't do uh, what you wanted to do. Not only did you not get the job done, but now you're hurt too. And again, can't plead ignorance because somebody warned you. But you didn't listen. All of us have been in that situation, probably multiple times, probably more times than we would care to admit. And in Daniel chapter 5, we find a king in a similar quandary. He should have learned the lesson of King Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was this king's predecessor, and he knew perhaps witnessed himself what had happened to Nebuchadnezzar, which we saw in chapter 4. It's been some years ago, uh, probably, since that happened, but it's still something he should have known. But rather than heed the lesson of Nebuchadnezzar, he makes the same mistake. He sins in a similar way, and as a result, it costs him dearly. So let's see what... God has to tell us in Daniel chapter 5. We've just read this chapter and been introduced to a new king, King Belshazzar. Now, it gets a little confusing because Daniel, when he came to Babylon, he was renamed Belteshazzar, and this king is named Belshazzar. So it's almost the same name, but thankfully we can just call Daniel Daniel, and we'll call this king Belshazzar, and that'll save some of the confusion. Belshazzar is the king in Babylon, and again, some time has passed since Daniel chapter 4. We don't know how uh, Nebuchadnezzar's reign ended, at least we're not told that in the book of Daniel. Uh, The last time we saw Nebuchadnezzar, he had learned the lesson um, that God had set to teach him about his pride when he humbled Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar was restored to his kingdom. His majesty and glory were restored to him. His kingdom was restored to him. And Nebuchadnezzar himself was the one telling us the story in in Daniel chapter 4 about what had happened to him and what God had taught him. But now in chapter 5, we've moved to a new king. Belshazzar is reigning in Babylon. And he is hosting a great feast. A thousand of his lords are there. And they're drinking wine And one can only presume, you know, having a big time. And Belshazzar, it says in verse 2, when he tasted the wine, he gave a command. And that command was that the vessels that had been taken from the temple in Jerusalem, when Nebuchadnezzar, um, you know, brought the exiles from Babylon, or from, from Judah, he had besieged Judah, And he brought exiles from Judah because God had given Judah into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar because of Judah's sin. 
when Nebuchadnezzar did that, he brought some of the vessels from the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, it, things that had been dedicated to the worship of God. Right? Things that were used as a part of the worship in the temple there in Jerusalem. Those things Nebuchadnezzar had brought to Babylon and he had placed them in the temple of his God. But now Belshazzar says, go, go get those holy vessels and bring them here to my feast so that I and my lords and my concubines can drink wine from them. So these are, again, cups, goblets, vessels, whatever, that have been dedicated, sanctified for the purpose of using in worship of the one true God. And Belshazzar says, no, we're going to use those for me. We're going to use those to celebrate the glory of my kingdom, the glory of my reign, or whatever. You know, we're, we're going to use those for me and all of my lords and concubines and so on are going to drink from them. That's what they do in verse 3. And then in verse 4 it says, They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So not only were they dishonoring the God of Israel, the one true God, by using His holy vessels for their feast that had nothing to do with God, but they also are committing idolatry in this feast. It's a pagan feast. It's an idolatrous feast. Rather than honoring the one true God, right, they are honoring gods that are really no gods at all. And it's in that moment that the handwriting is written on the wall. Right? This is one of those phrases from the Bible that is uh, entered into our culture and stayed in our culture beyond the point where most people have any idea where it comes from or what it means. Right? We all know when somebody says, oh, you can see the handwriting on the wall, that means doom is coming, right? Some kind of disaster is coming. But most people probably don't know that that comes from this scene in the book of Daniel. As they are feasting using God's holy vessels for their pagan idolatrous feast, it's in that moment, verse 5 says, that the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. Now that's an ominous event, right? It, that, is, that is not something that you want to see. A disembodied hand, as it were, right, writing on the wall of the king's palace. And the king, it says, saw the hand as it wrote, and verse 6 says, and the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him, his limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. The king is terrified. He's distraught, he's disturbed, he's alarmed, and as a result, verse 7 says, the king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and so on. So the king is disturbed, he's alarmed, and so what does he do? He starts shouting for all the wise men to come. He wants some sense made of this event as quickly as possible. Somebody come tell me what this means. Somebody come tell me what is going on. But as we've seen before in the book of Daniel... None of the professional interpreters, none of the Chaldeans, none of the wise men 
in Babylon were able to interpret to the king what the writing on the wall says. Verse 8, Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. That appears to have disturbed the king even more. Not only has this ominous event happened, but nobody can tell me what it means. Verse 9, Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. So now they're almost, you know, we can almost say like doubly disturbed by what is going on. And the king had even promised, right, in verse 7, that whoever would interpret this message and tell him what it means would receive a great reward and would even be elevated to third rank in the kingdom. But even that could not induce anyone to venture an interpretation of this message that they apparently could not read and could not understand. Now, thankfully, there's somebody in this story who knows what you and I know and says what you and I would say if we were here in this story. Hey, we know somebody who knows a thing or two about interpreting stuff, right? The queen, or you might have a footnote like I do that says uh, the queen mother. Uh, It says, because of the words of the king and his lords came in the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. Right? She's talking about Daniel. And she's telling Belshazzar, Hey, there's a guy in your kingdom you apparently don't know about or have forgotten about or whatever, and this guy's different. As we saw last time, Nebuchadnezzar said more than once that uh, Daniel had the spirit of the holy gods in him, or maybe been a couple of chapters ago. And um, he was recognizing there's something divine at work in Daniel. We would say the Holy Spirit was at work in Daniel, but these people are not, they're not Jews, they're not Christians, they don't think in those terms, they just recognize there's some kind of God, some kind of divine spirit, something at work in this guy, because he can do things and understand things and explain things that nobody else can understand or explain. So she goes on and says, In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And she goes on to say that uh, Nebuchadnezzar made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel. So, in other words, she's saying, this is the guy you need. This is the guy you need to call on. He's got a proven track record. He was honored by Nebuchadnezzar. He was placed above all the other wise men and astrologers and so on because he can explain what nobody else seems to be able to explain. So... As would make sense, right? The king says, okay, well, let's, let's bring this Daniel in. Let's see what he's got to say. Let's see if, see if he can do it again. See if he can explain this time what nobody else is able to explain. So the king brings Daniel in, and the king says to him, in effect, I know who you are. I know that you're one of the exiles from Judah. Right? I've heard, verse 14, I've heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you. And he explains the situation. The wise men, verse 15, the enchanters have been brought in before me, uh, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. 
Verse 16, but I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. And then he tells them about the, the reward if he can explain this mystery. Now, I don't know how he anticipated Daniel responding. He may have been skeptical. He may have thought, well, yeah, well, that was way back then. And, you know, stories tend to grow as time passes. You know, maybe this Daniel's not so great. Maybe he got lucky once or twice. Who knows? Maybe he doesn't have a very high opinion of Daniel. But I sincerely doubt that he expected Daniel to say what he said. Because the first thing Daniel said was, in a nice way, I don't need or want your gifts or rewards. Verse 17 He says, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. I don't need to be third in the kingdom. I don't need the honors and rewards you've promised. And once again, I wonder if the reason why Daniel says this is because he already knows what the writing means. If he's already looked at the handwriting and he's already interpreted what it says, he knows these rewards are worthless. They're meaningless. They're about to be pointless. So perhaps that's why Daniel refuses, graciously, but refuses the rewards. The next thing Daniel says, I doubt that Belshazzar expected him to say uh, either. Because the next thing Daniel does is he reminds Belshazzar of what happened with Nebuchadnezzar. He doesn't go straight to interpreting the message. First thing he does is he reminds him of the lesson that Nebuchadnezzar learned that Belshazzar himself should have learned as well, but didn't. Right? He reminds him about how great Nebuchadnezzar was. Verse 18. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. God is the one who made Nebuchadnezzar great. God is the one who gave Nebuchadnezzar his glory, his kingdom, and so on. He could do whatever he wanted, right? He had all this power and authority. But, he says, verse 20, when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. When he became arrogant, when he became proud, the same God who had exalted him to that high position and given him that kingdom, that glory, and so on, that same God humbled him. Now, why is he telling Belshazzar this? He's telling Belshazzar this because Belshazzar's actions at his feast are similar to Nebuchadnezzar's actions. Remember when Nebuchadnezzar, back in chapter 3, built a golden statue that he commanded everybody to bow down and worship as though Nebuchadnezzar himself were God and could tell people who they were to worship. Arrogant. That was part of Nebuchadnezzar's pride that God judged and punished through Nebuchadnezzar's humiliation. And now Belshazzar similarly hosts this feast where he uses God's holy vessels for himself instead of for the worship of God and praises other false gods in this feast. What is he doing? He's acting with arrogance and pride, just like Nebuchadnezzar had done. 
And so Daniel is reminding him of what happened to Nebuchadnezzar, how he was humbled in verse 21, how he became like an animal, thought like an animal, lived with the animals, ate like an animal, until, verse 21 says, until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. Until he learned that God is God and Nebuchadnezzar is not. And that God doesn't need Nebuchadnezzar, and that God could have put somebody else in Nebuchadnezzar's place without any problem at all. But, verse 22, you his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. You watched or heard about Nebuchadnezzar learning this lesson and yet you did not learn it yourself. You can't claim ignorance, Belshazzar. You can't claim ignorance about the Most High God. You can't claim ignorance about the consequences for pride and arrogance. And yet you persisted in your pride and dishonored the Most High God. Verse 23, he says, But you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. How has he done that? The vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. That's how he acted in pride. That's how he dishonored the Lord. And then he says, in verse 20, at the end of verse 23, he says, but you, you honored these gods who can't see, can't hear, don't know anything, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. You've worshipped and honored gods that don't exist. But the God who gives you breath, the God who causes your heart to beat, the God who's placed you on this throne, Belteshazzar, what have you done for him? Nothing. How have you honored him? You have not. Instead, you have dishonored him, taking his holy things for your own use. This is... The problem at the root of every person who doesn't actively honor the Lord. We're all made to honor someone or something. And everybody praises, honors something or someone. You give thanks to something or someone. Even if you say it's fate or, you know, the, the universe here has been nice to me this week or whatever. Everybody honors something. But if we give the honor that belongs to God alone to something else or someone else, regardless of what else we do that we think is good or decent or fine... We are failing in our chief responsibility and calling, which is to give honor and glory to the one true God, the one who created us, the one who gives us life and breath. This is what Paul singles out in Romans chapter 1 as 
one of the chief sins, if not the chief sin of all humanity. He says, God has made Himself known from the beginning of creation in the things that have been made. You can look out at the sun, the moon, the stars, the trees, the mountains, the ocean, whatever, and you can see there's a Creator, and He's been good to us. We, we ought to thank Him. We ought to honor Him. Because I didn't put that ocean there. I didn't build that mountain, but I sure enjoy it. Who should I thank for that? The God who made everything. But Paul says what people have done, although they know from creation that there's a God, what they have done instead is they have worshipped things that were created instead of the Creator. They worship a person. They worship a thing. They worship an animal. They worship an object. They worship money. They worship possessions. They worship power. We're very creative. We give up all kinds of things to worship instead of God. But that makes us guilty before God. Just like Belshazzar was. Because he didn't honor the God in whose hand is your breath, as Daniel put it. So long as you don't honor and thank the one true God, right? You're guilty before God. I'm guilty before God. And that guilt that Belshazzar had came crashing upon him all in one moment. Verse 24, Daniel continues, and and he he gets now, now that he's set this up appropriately, now he gets to the interpretation of the handwriting on the wall. Here's, Here's where you've fallen short, Belshazzar. Here's why you're guilty before God. And he had to tell him that first so that he would understand where this judgment is coming from. Verse 24, it says, Then from his presence, it's still Daniel talking to Belshazzar about God, from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. So, it's the Most High God, whose vessels you've been misusing and abusing, who you have failed to worship while worshiping gods that don't exist, it's that God who sent this hand to write this message. And if the king wasn't disturbed enough, before now, he's probably really troubled now. Now, before we get into the meaning of the words that are written on the wall, we need to talk about how this interpretation works. Because this is something like a riddle, right? These words that are written on the wall, they're written in a language that you and I probably don't read and understand, right? But the people there would have recognized it, right? When I read to you earlier, mene, mene, tekel, parson, you weren't like, oh, I think, okay, I think I, know, I might know what that means. We're like, what is mene? What is tekel? Those words mean nothing to us, right? Um, but the people who were there in the room, they would have recognized, at least at some level, what was written on the wall. They just didn't understand what it meant, right? And in this way, it works like a riddle. Okay, think about a, a riddle. If, if your kid gets a riddle book or something, you know, and starts reading you riddles or your grandkids or whatever. A riddle uses words you usually understand, but puts them together in, in a way that you don't automatically get what's going on in the riddle, right? There, there's some, 
like wordplay or some little twist on the meaning of a word or, or there's a word that sounds like another word and so you think they're using this word when really they're using another word and there's some kind of little nuance in the language right? that is the key to interpreting the riddle. And so then when they tell you the answer to the riddle, you go, oh, okay, now I see what they're doing, right? But if you try to explain that riddle to somebody who doesn't know English well, right? And, and you gave a literal translation of that riddle written in English, you translate it into French, let's say, to try to share it with a French person. Well, the riddle probably doesn't work once you translate it. Because the reason the riddle works is there's some, you know, little subtle shade of meaning in the words in the English language that we're using in the riddle that when you translate it, they don't automatically translate, right? They don't automatically make sense in another language. The the riddle is probably going to fall apart, all right? So that's one reason why it's difficult for us to understand how this message works and how Daniel interprets it. Another reason is that the way... Uh, the biblical writers play with words sometimes is different than how we play with words, right? So we all have little, you know, little word play that we can do with word. This word sounds like this, and so I can use it in a riddle or whatever. But in the Bible, they do it a little bit differently than we do. For example, the name Moses, all right? Remember Moses? Moses was a baby. He was put in the basket in the river by his mom and the the, the uh, daughter of Pharaoh found him in the river and she ended up raising him, right? Well, in that story, this is just one example of how this works in the Bible. In that story, we're told he was named Moses, right? She says, I'm going to name him Moses because I drew him out of the water. And we don't go, oh, of course, Moses. That makes sense because you drew him out of the water, no connection for us, right? One reason is because Moses is a Hebrew name, and the, the word, the, the translation doesn't carry over, right? Another reason is because he, here's how the wordplay works Moshe, that's his name in Hebrew, sounds like the word masha, which means to draw out. So when, when it says that in the Bible, if you're hearing it in the original language, right, you would hear, I'm going to call him Moshe because I masha him. Like, okay, that does sound at least kind of similar. And Hebrews, Jews would go, yeah, okay, that makes sense. The name Moses, the reason why he's called Moses is because he was drawn out of the water. His name sounds like that. All right, so that's different than how we do it, right? Uh, if you've ever read one of those, you know, little cards or posters or something that tells you the meaning of your name, you know, like my name is Matthew. And they all those little things, they say Matthew means gift of God. Well, it doesn't sound like that in English. <laughs> it comes from something else. It doesn't sound like gift, but that's just what it is, right? But in the Bible, the, the names and the meanings sound similar. You can almost hear it. Okay, and that's how this interpretation works. So when he says, mene, mene, we, we need help with this, right? So hopefully you've got notes in your Bible. I've got notes in my Bible. If you don't have notes at the bottom of the page in your Bible, you can maybe go home and Check a study Bible if you've got one of those at home, and you'll hopefully see something like this. I'm not making this up. The, the scholars who study these languages and things, they, they give us some help here so that we have some idea of what's going on. The word mene, you might have a note like I do that says mene sounds like the Aramaic word for numbered. 
It sounds like numbered. All right, so mene sounds like numbered. Tekel sounds like the word for weighed. And parson, right, sounds like the word for divided. And it sounds like the word for Persia. All right, so mene sounds like numbered. And so Daniel says, verse 26, this is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Oh, Okay, if I just read the word on the wall, I don't know. It's not the word numbered, it just sounds like numbered. And Daniel says, let me tell you why that word that God wrote on that wall sounds like numbered. It sounds like numbered because God's telling you he's numbered the days of your kingdom. It's almost over. The next word, tekel, he says, verse 27, tekel, which sounds like the word for weighed, Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. There's another phrase that we still use in our culture, though many people probably don't know what story it comes from, right? You've been weighed and found wanting. It sounds like weighed. God's message to you is he's weighed you, King Belshazzar, and you don't measure up. You've been found wanting. And then the last word, Perez, which, again, the notes say Perez is... Uh, singular, Parsons of plural, right? Perez sounds like two words. It sounds like divided. And the reason it sounds like that is because your kingdom has been divided, Belshazzar. And it sounds like the word for Persia. And the reason for that is because God has given your kingdom to the Medes and the Persians. So there's some wordplay going on. There's some language difference that makes it difficult for us to understand exactly uh, what's going on here without some helpful notes from Bible scholars and translators and whatnot. But once they kind of explain it to us, you can at least go, I I can kind of see how that works, right? That's about as close as we can get, right? Because it's, again, it's basically a riddle written in another language that we don't understand. And so something gets lost in the translation, but the idea is still there. Now, when Daniel makes this interpretation, it is clearly a judgment that has been written against the king on the wall. None of this is good news for the king. Your days are numbered. You've been weighed and found wanting. Your kingdom is divided and handed over to another people. Then the king gives the command, verse 29, and Daniel was clothed with purple, a chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be third ruler in the kingdom. Oh, goody. Right? What great honor in a kingdom that's taking its last breath. It means nothing. It's worthless. Because verse 30 says, that very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. So the word, not only of the handwriting on the wall, not only was that fulfilled, but also if you think back to chapter 2 and the statue of the image made of four different metals, like the gold, silver, bronze, and iron, and Daniel explained, Nebuchadnezzar, you're the head of gold, that's the Babylonian kingdom, and after you is going to come an inferior kingdom, a kingdom of silver, that's the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians, which is now taking control of Babylon at the end of the reign of Belshazzar. Now, before we wrap this up, there are a few things we need to learn from this passage, because what we don't want to do 
is look at Belshazzar and kind of wag our finger and wag our head and say, oh, Belshazzar, you should have learned. You should have paid attention to what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. You should have listened to what God said and you should have known what was going to happen if you acted this way and then turn around and ourselves not learn the lessons that we're supposed to learn from what happened to Belshazzar. We don't want to be guilty of the same mistake. So here are a handful of things that we need to learn from this story about Belshazzar in Daniel chapter 5. The first one is that none of us knows how many days we have left. Belshazzar, on his last day, was throwing a feast, celebrating. Didn't look, as far as we can tell, didn't look like he had any inkling that his days were up. Looked like he thought he was on top of the wave, right? On top of the mountain. This, this is the apex. It's so good. You know what? Bring in those vessels that have been sitting in the temple for all these years. Uh, bring those vessels out. Let's, this, is a, this is a great night. That's how he seemed to be acting. He had no idea that that was going to be his last day. Jesus warns us of something, uh, of the same thing in, in a slightly different way. He tells a parable where he says, The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Here's a man, Jesus says, who had everything he needed and more, but he didn't seem to care a thing about God. He only cared about his stuff. And guess what? He got all that stuff. God said, your time is up. And the stuff belongs to somebody else. And the things that mattered the most, he lacked because he was not rich toward God. We also need to learn from this passage that the presence of wealth, prestige, power, and a big crowd of people is no sure sign of God's blessing. There are plenty of people who look like, from one way of looking at things, they look like God's just showering them with favor. Man, they're wealthy, people love them. They're popular. They seem to have everything that anybody could want. But there are a lot of people who receive those kinds of things. And it's not because they have God's favor. It's not because God is blessing them because they're such great people. It's no clear sign of God's blessing when someone has wealth and power and prestige or even a lot of people following them around. It may just mean they have a lot of wealth and power and people following them around. Closely connected to that is the reminder that pride is folly. Especially when you have wealth and prestige and a lot of people following you. A lot of power. It's easy to become arrogant and proud. It's easy to think 
that you are the reason you have all these things. That's what happened to Nebuchadnezzar back in chapter 4. Look at this great Babylon that I have built for my glory. He didn't build it. Not all of it. And he didn't have any of the stuff that he had because he was so great. He had it because of what God gave to him. That's what we tend to forget whenever we even get sometimes a little bit of power, a little bit of pride, a little bit of money. We start to think it's all because of us. And we get arrogant. It's also easy to look at those who have those things when we don't and wish that we had them. Even if the people who have them that we're envying are not the kind of people we ought to want to be. Psalm 72 deals with this a little bit. Where Early in the psalm, the psalm writer says, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And part of what he says in that psalm, if I'm remembering correctly, is he says, you know, basically, it's hard to be faithful to God, but here are these wicked people, their life looks easy. Not only is their life easier than mine, they got more stuff than me. How's that fair? But then he says, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God, then... I discerned their end. Then, in other words, he's saying, I remembered what is going to happen to them. That there is more to life, so to speak, than this life. All of us are going to have to stand before God and give an account. Our souls continue to exist beyond the death of our physical bodies. We have to give an account before the Lord. There is an eternity stretching out before us. And what we are tempted to do is look at how life shakes out in the here and now, in our 70, 80 years, however much God gives us. And we look at people who have more, and we look at people whose life is easy, and we want to say, God, why is my life hard? Why don't I have more stuff? Why is this so difficult? Why are they getting away with that? I haven't caused near as much trouble as they have, and I'm in more trouble than them. How is that fair? Then the psalmist remembered, the story's not over yet. And they're not going to get away with anything. They're going to have to give an account before God just like I am. And they may get away with it for what seems like months, years, decades. But they won't get away with it forever. Anyone who doesn't repent, who doesn't trust the Lord, who doesn't give thanks to God, who doesn't bow their knee to Jesus here and now, they're going to have to deal with the consequences of that. Just like Belshazzar did. Belshazzar didn't honor God, though his life was in God's hand. And that reminds us, Right, that we need to honor God because our life is in His hand. And that's both, in one sense, there's, there's some bad news that goes with that, and there's some good news that goes with that. The bad news that goes with that is, like, is that just like Belshazzar, nobody's getting away with anything. There's nobody who God can say, uh, yeah, you're, you're outside of my, you know, you're outside of my jurisdiction. Somebody else is going to have to deal with you. No, God's going to deal with everybody. Nobody's exempt. 
Right? He holds our life in, our, in His hand, and when He says, your days are up, your time is numbered, it's time for you to come give an account, that's it. But there's good news too, because the God who holds our life in His hand is the same God who gave up His Son, right? who stretched out His hands so that we might be forgiven through His sacrifice, through His death on the cross, so that we might be reconciled to God, so that all our pride and arrogance and folly and envy and greed and everything else might be wiped out and cleansed from us and forgiven, so that as the Bible says, there be no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. And also, that same Jesus said, if you're my sheep, if you listen to my voice, if you believe me and trust me and follow me, guess what? You are in my hand, and you are in my Father's hand, and I and the Father are one, and no one's snatching you out of my hand. So, God's hand is a, it's in one sense a dangerous place to be if you don't trust Him, don't honor Him, don't care about Him. If you dishonor Him, you're in a dangerous place. I mean, He's good, right? He's good, but you are living dangerously, living in His hand, dishonoring Him. But if you will repent, if you will trust Him, there's no better place that you could be. There's no safer place than you could be. No more sure and secure place that you could be than in His hands. But that's not you, right? We would encourage you, plead with you, implore with you, implore you to repent, to trust Christ, to trust God. Don't let your sin keep you from Him. Let your sin be the reason why you turn to Him. I need you to forgive me. I need you to cleanse me. I need you to make me right. Don't let pride keep you from Him. Don't let indifference keep you from Him. You can't plead ignorance. The lessons are there in the Bible. We've heard them. We've seen them. We've witnessed them. We have to heed them. If we don't, there will be dire consequences. But if we do heed them, there's grace, glory, and forgiveness for all of us. Let's pray.